here from the Traveller in the Evening again for another podcast. Um, we're trying to think through topics we can discuss in future podcasts, but we thought it would be a reasonable idea to, to introduce the Traveller in the Evening and say something about how it came about and what its ambitions are, what the point of the Substack site is. So to help me with that, I've got, as has been uh, often the case, my friend Conor Kostick here with me. And he's going to be leading a Q&A session with me to say something about the history of the site. But before we do that, I'll just remind everybody that it'd be great if you subscribed to the newsletter. I think you can hear the podcast anyway, but please sign up for the newsletter so that you'll get news of forthcoming events and podcasts and whatnot. Well, I think the, the first question is why that title? Where does that come from? The Traveller in the Evening. What's that evoke? I had two reasons for using that. The title comes from a work by Blake, but um, where I know it from is a book by Morton Paley about Blake, um, The Traveller in the Evening. And um, it's really about the later Blake, his more mature work. So it's got a kind of late Beethoven feel to it, you know, the idea that uh, Blake achieved some particular kind of maturity in this later work. Um, but I also liked it as an image because when I was thinking of doing this site, i just retired, and so I was thinking of myself as the traveller in the evening. You know, I stopped working, and I promised myself when I retired, I'd do more research into Blake and look more at Blake. So it was really an image that sort of summed that up. Is it Hegel who says that the owl of Minerva flies at the the evening? In other words, at the twilight of of a moment, wisdom comes. Because that's what it evokes to me, a, a sort of a desire for, for wisdom in, in the face of increasing darkness. Uh, yes, that is uh, from Hegel. Hegel's idea is that a world only takes shape and could be fully seen as it's ending, so to say. Well, that's pertinent in another way, isn't it? Because I've been writing about Titans and um, Timothy Morton's idea of the end of the world we've been living in for the last few thousand years. So I guess it's the Hegel, the Owl of Minerva thing might apply to that. Uh, but whether it applies to me, myself, I'm very doubtful. <laughs> I'm doubtful, or should I say hopeful. Hopefully I've still got some wisdom left at this to apply to. And, you know, imagine anyone who's who's found the podcast, hopefully uh, is enjoying it. For me, what I enjoy is that I think you've found a path towards thinking in an original way about a lot of different topics. And that path has gone through Blake. So I've known you for years, and we would have both been Marxists for a while, very definitely reading voraciously Marx and seeing everything through a lens that in hindsight might have been more party-shaped lens than Marx himself. But anyway, Marx definitely would have carried that flag. But that only gets one so far... And looking around at the Marxist landscape today, you'd have to be a bit sceptical about the the power and its ability to, to offer original thought. So you found a different way, which was through Blake. So why why Blake? How did you even how did you even decide Blake was worth your time? Yeah, I I'd read Blake a long time ago when I was at college, as many years ago, and um 
I sort of filed it away. I found, I found my first ever copy of Blake's collected works, actually. Um, and it's really massively annotated. I must have done that at the time I first read it. But I, obviously I'd sort of forgotten a lot of that. Because it came as a surprise to me later when I found that book to see how much work I'd put into Blake. But the topic came up again when I was part of a group, the Association of Musical Marxists, which I founded with uh, Ben Watson. And um, Ben wrote a book called Blake in Cambridge, which was about Jeremy Prynne, the poet, and about Blake, and it caused quite a controversy in our group. There was a huge debate about it and about the state of poetry today, but it all hinged around the reception of, of Blake. Some of the details of the debate were boring, I'm sure, but it, it did hinge around Blake. So I kind of found myself forced to revisit Blake, and this would be about 15 years ago or something now, but um, no, 10 years ago at least. But in revisiting Blake, I was rereading him, and I was just profoundly struck by how radical his thought was. I mean, it was, you know, a lot of people when they first come to Blake are quite mystified by him, and I was certainly mystified by him. He's often quite difficult to follow, but that's because he is thinking in a very different way to the way we're used to thinking. So the first thing that struck me about him was just how different his mode of thought was, and in a sense how radical his critique of the state of the world is based on these really radical, thoroughgoing ideas. It's one of those things, it's really difficult to describe. I just found myself in awe of Blake and thinking about him constantly and thinking in terms of the images in his works and so on. So he haunted me for a long time and uh, I got more and more interested in his work and started really trying to study Milton and Jerusalem and so on. So it was led me to becoming part of uh, the Blake Society. So I was kind of involved in that world. But as my interest in his ideas developed, I began to see them in all kinds of new lights. And he actually led me on to think much more deeply about ecology and to be much more concerned about that, based on ideas I got from Blake. And um, I also, to kind of cover another base, I was really struck by how modern Blake is. You know, the image we have of Blake is... It's sometimes I think, you know, when I talk to people about Blake and he's new to them, they've picked up on this idea of Blake as a kind of Toby Jug kind of character, almost rustic. He's, oh, I suppose on the one hand he's seen as a cockney. He's seen as just a typical London bloke. I remember Jar Wobble did an album, William Bloke. And this kind of image of him is almost homely, bizarre, because his ideas are bizarre. They're kind of way out of kilter with the ordinary ideas of society, not only in his day, but in ours. So I saw him uh, in a way, I think he's seen more in France this way, as, as being akin to modern French artists, and particularly to people like the Surrealists. He's kind of seen that way in France, but in England he's not seen that way at all. So reading Blake really brought home to me his radical theology, his radical artistic ideas, which connected with the Surrealists, and you know his interest in, well, he... You couldn't call it ecology then, but you know the the implications of his ideas considering ecological crisis. So in other words, Blake then spilled out into all sorts of other areas for me. Would it be fair to say that he he's like the coloration that unites all the topics that you you're investigating, discussing, um, laughing at? bouncing around it's like you're looking at them with these 
Blakeian spectacles and that's given them all a, a sort of sepia tinge or whatever tinge you get when wearing Blakeian's spectacles. Yeah, does it work to help you have a sort of thematic approach to what topics you're covering and writing about and having podcasts about? I don't think there's any theme at all. Or rather, the things that there are are emerging from the stuff itself because I've had no plan at all in how I wanted to pursue these ideas. They really did flow from reading Blake. So I guess one thing that I spotted about Blake quite early on is that there's a big gap between what I see as being core Blakean values and what the rest of the world does. So the common reception of Blake seems to be way out of kilter with the reality but that's also true in academia, I think. Our perception of Blake has changed in the decades since, you know, specifically the 60s, the sort of height of the counterculture, because it was at that point that Blake really came to a mass countercultural audience. And in a sense, for my generation, our culture, our views of Blake were moulded by that counterculture. So I'm talking about people like Aldous Huxley, and the Beats, uh, Dylan, you know, Ginsberg, all of these people, you know, obviously massive figures of the 60s counterculture, but all of them deeply into Blake, as is reflected in their works over and over again. So to me, the idea of Blake was always allied in my mind with the political and social radicalism of the 60s. He's a revolutionary figure, basically. So people know that he's connected backwards in some sense to the sort of militant uh, dissenting movements of the 17th century, um, but he very much became a figurehead for the radical movement of the 1960s. But since that time, the reception of him has, has slowly shifted. It slowly changed its centre of gravity. And increasingly, Blake has been seen in a kind of parochial, nationalistic light. There have even been people you know, who set out to try and show that Blake wasn't all that political, that he wasn't all that working class. And ultimately, that he wasn't all that radical. And this all serves a kind of vaguely, usually serves some kind of vaguely nationalist agenda. So, you know, the image of Blake as the author of Jerusalem, proudly singing England's favourite hymn. So I've always sensed this huge gap between what I see as Blake and how Blake is seen in current commentary, both academic and, and not non-academic. And that contrast brought out some of these issues, certainly in terms of the radicalism of Blake's ideas and his connection with quite, you know, high modernist ideas of, of art and the kind of disruption implicit in art or in good art. So I wanted to connect Blake with that kind of modernism as part of this reaction to this attempt to pacify Blake and bring him to heel and make him much safer as a cultural icon. Let's drill into that a bit more because, um, yes, I'd like to return to the ecology issue and, and some of the spin-offs, but, but at the heart of this blog, I think, is are some really important critiques exactly in the spirit that you've summarised, but let's dive into it in a bit more detail. You read a really important essay on Higgs, John Higgs, so you might say more about that. I don't want to go in, in too great a detail because it's sort of past business in a way, but... John brought John Higgs brought out this book on Blake, and John himself has a reputation as a kind of uh, journalist. I don't know if he's off the counterculture to some extent he is, but certainly a journalist who writes about the counterculture. Okay, so he'd written about the KLF, for example, 
he wrote this this book on Blake, and I thought it was going to be a pretty significant event because it would try and rescue Blake from the counterculture. Uh, but in fact, I sort of made quite a travesty of, of Blake's ideas, and, and in some ways it was quite silly in a lot of places. Um, but despite that kind of silliness and, the, and what you might say are errors, there, there was this overwhelming tone in the book that Blake is essentially a very uh, British and English character. Obviously, there's a, some contradictions to be unpicked there, but nevertheless, he's essentially a kind of nationalist figure. So John Higgs concludes his book by saying that because we all sing Jerusalem, the hymn Jerusalem, therefore Blake can bring us all together. And that really agitated me because, as I say, it fits hand in glove into this tendency uh, towards uh, pacifying, taming Blake and making him more of a nationalist than he was. So I didn't like it from that point of view, but I also was quite horrified by this notion that we would want to sit down with everyone who sings Jerusalem. Because, you know, the BNP sing Jerusalem. They've been known to sing it at their conferences. The Tory party sing Jerusalem. And I thought the idea that I thought the fact that Blake's radicalism had become in this popular book an injunction to sit down with the Tory party and, you know, cease class war or whatever, I thought it was uh, uh, troubling. So I did write quite an analysis of the book some time ago. And then in the same vein, I wrote a long criticism of a book by Professor Jason Whitaker about Blake's in Jerusalem. But at this point, I'll just refer people to the essays, um, the point that, that, that are on, you know, they're, they're on Substack. Uh, but the point right now is that both of those essays are responses to ways that Blake is being brought into mainstream culture by being defanged and being made a much safer character. Uh, because these books were both significant in their own way, you know, Jason is a, a trustee of the Blake Society and he's a leading figure in um, Blake studies in academia on the one hand, and then John Higgs is a reasonably well-known author. So putting those things together, these were significant books in terms of influencing the modern reception of Blake. And they both concluded on this point about nationalism, actually. So there's a perfect symmetry between the books. But as I say, my point isn't to recapitulate you know, all the issues I had with those books, but just to say that my response to them was because of the gap I see between the, the reality of Blake and the, and the current perception of him in academia and popular. Good. Well, um, people can, can dive into the specifics of those essays and you do get to grips with his pantheon of divine figures and what they, the, a lot of the argument comes down to what, what do they actually represent in Blake's thought. But I'm quite persuaded by your take on these. Um, Okay, so we'll park that and then you use Blake, as you yourself have said there, as a sort of cultural lens, a way to look at culture, counterculture especially. And I didn't know that about the Association of Musical Marxists, that that's what triggered the, the reappraisal. But I did know that then you got drawn into looking at counterculture and surrealism. So I enjoyed learning more about Ian Sinclair and Brian Catling from you. So perhaps you'd just say more about that, that you you seem to have reconnected with um, with people from the, the 60s counterculture. Well, you know, I, I got those guys to speak at the Blake Society, but putting those particular things together isn't, isn't 
novel in any way because you know, Sinclair certainly is well recognised as someone in the wake of Blake and a Blakean character, and he's been quite important in reflecting the radical Blake back in toward the culture, you know, as well as the just interest in his own poetry and his novels and, and his various writings. I mean, he's a really fascinating character. Uh, I, I find the same with Brian, okay? But again, he's seen as part of that 60s radical counterculture that was kind of intermingled with Blake or saturated with Blake or whatever. I mean, Sinclair went around with Ginsburg when Ginsburg was in Britain for the Dialectics of Liberation Conference. So Gin Ginsburg was over here and Sinclair went around with him and filmed a lot of it and has written extensively about it in his uh, Kodak Mantra Diaries. So I just see these people as part of that, broadly conceived, this 60s counterculture beat, hippie, and so on. But I see those people as having brought Blake, uh, when I say those people, I'm not talking just about Ian and, and Brian specifically, but I mean, you know, the Beats and so on, and, and Huxley, I see those people as reflecting Blake's genuine radicalism and recognising it and embracing it and then translating it into a, you know, a fairly mass popular culture. So I think there's much to be learned from that culture when you contrast it, as I've said earlier, with the kind of modern reception of Blake. So I'm all for, you know, bringing these guys, you know, no, no, I'm looking at people like Sinclair in connection with Blake and recognising how that connection and Alan Moore in this context as well? Oh, sure. I mean, I saw Alan Moore. I saw him in a little theatre in Leicester Square a few years ago when the Blake Society were fundraising, uh, trying to get money to build a gravestone for Blake. Because okay? um, some scholars had found the actual location of Blake's grave. Uh, whereas before, the grave had just been stuck in some random part of Lincoln's Inn Field. So they were having these fundraisers to pay for a new gravestone. And um, they put on this event in this theatre. And Alan Moore read some Blake, and he, he just absolutely channeled Blake. It was quite uncanny. Uh, but again, I don't want to dwell too much on the kind of the fact that people like Moore is clearly a fair fan of Blake. Was, you know, a recent novel was called Jerusalem, and Blake is just woven completely into the heart of it. Um, but I don't want to dwell too much on that because I think it's great that people are more looking at Blake and, and so on. But I think that the real thing here is to try and uh, reflect Blake's radicalism into a, a much wider audience than it currently is. I mean, you know, plenty of people read Alan Moore. And I think anyone who reads him, I don't want to say seriously, but more than just casually, you know, someone who's read a, a bit of his stuff will, will recognise his um, death to Blake and his many references to Blake. But whether it goes much deeper than that, I don't know. I, I, I'm sure it does in many cases, but we do, I'd just like to see more. Yeah, and, and I'll just say in passing, we, there's some great essays as well on the KLF and Blade Runner. But there's plenty of ways to use your knowledge of Blake to give insights into, into what's happening in terms of uh, counterculture. Um, but, but let's try and go a bit deeper then. You have... This is this is going to be yes a slightly tricky area because I, I want to ask you about religion. Blake is clearly religious, but what kind of religion is it that Blake has? What's his relationship to the church that, as you understand it? Let's start with that, and then if you want to take as well what that means for you and your attitude to religion. Yes, Blake's known to be a Christian, and he's always assumed to be a, a dissenter. 
and there's always been, or there's long been, debate among scholars about exactly what form the dissenting church's influence Blake. Okay, so E.B. Thompson argued that Blake's family were Muggletonians, and that's been you know, disproved now. But nevertheless, you know, his parents were involved in that kind of radical culture. They were they were members of the Moravian Church, who are absolutely fascinating group, by the way. But nevertheless, you know, we just generally assume that, you know, Blake is this dissenter of some kind. But I think if he's a dissenter of any kind, it's sort of an extremely original kind. So whatever influences there were there on him, you know, coming from that, that sort of background, he certainly transformed those influences and made them his own, as it were. So he certainly was a Christian. And I guess the problem I had with all of that is that I come from a completely secular, atheistic background. I'd always considered myself atheist or agnostic. So it was very difficult for me in engaging with Blake because I recognised the profoundly religious essence of his thought. And I, I was clearly hugely attracted to it. But I couldn't explain to myself how I could be attracted to that side of it and still be an atheist. The kind of conflict or contradiction only really existed because I was looking at Blake from a kind of distance. The closer I got to Blake's actual thinking, the more I found that his ideas reflected some of my own or my own prejudices or whatever you want to call them. Um, so I found myself moving deeper and deeper into to Blake's religious world and at some point, I just crossed some line when I realised I was a religious thinker and I, ha I hadn't had to do anything weird along the way, like, you know, throw away my senses or, or my reason or the kind of thing secular people think happens if you accept that, that sort of view. Um, but before I accepted Blake's view, I realised that, for example, there were people in the 60s, there's a particular theologian I was interested in called uh, Thomas Altizer, who wrote about a kind of atheistic Christianity I don't want to get into too many details, but some of them are worth mentioning because they bear on the issue of ecology later on. Um, but the idea that Althusser put forward was that when God pours himself out into the world, in theology it's called kenosis, God pours himself out into the world. And the point is that Althusser reads that as saying that in a sense, with Christ's crucifixion, God in a sense committed suicide and entered into the world. So there's the world that is the object of the, the, the divine or of worship. Um, and I think what I'm trying to say is that I entered into the religious nature of Blake's thought. I found it more and more amenable to me. But I think the structure of Blake's thought in this regard is extremely sophisticated. It's not a matter of just you know deciding that you, you, you've got faith or something like that. It's a matter of how he sees the whole of human existence and its connection with the divine. And the last thing I'll say on this, because this isn't a you know, a podcast about Blake's religious views as such, but the last thing I'll say about it is that it is deeply consistent and that it's a key idea of his uh, in, in his religion is he says over and over again, he says several times anyway, he says, the imagination is the body of Christ. And I remember when I first read that, I thought, well, that's an odd thing to say. Imagination is the body of Christ. What does he mean? And it's one of those things where it just doesn't make sense, really, because it doesn't make sense from a common sense point of view that imagination be the body of Christ. All I'll say about that is that I realised eventually that he means it absolutely literally. 
that the imagination is the body of Christ and the imagination becomes the central fact of our psyche, if you know what I mean. It's the access to the real in, in some way. And again, I don't want to go into the details, but I'll, I'll sort of sum up by saying it's that sort of conception of the divine that I think is at work in Blake. And it's one that I myself am you know, quite happy with. Yeah, I know. And um, I also know that there'll be people on the left who will think this sounds completely off the wall, just, you know, that uh, you've lost the plot. Um, and I know this because whenever I can't even win an argument in some of my the, the sort of circles I argue with, um, that some religion can be good. I can't even get that a point across when clearly history has been full of radical and revolutionary movements that have been very religious with leaders. People like Malcolm X and Thomas Munzer, you know, who, who were motivated by their religion. So I can't even win that, let alone the more sort of philosophical um, arguments. But I just want to flag that what I think you're talking about is that there is a coming together of Blake's, um, I was going to say theory, but his raising up of Eurism as the problem as this cold-hearted rationalism, this, um, which, which hey, I made rationalism sound bad. There's nothing wrong with rationalism per se, but the, the new atheist and the scientist who can insist on a certain way of looking at the world turns out to be a historical moment and not, a, as they think, the sort of uh, only way in which one progresses human thought so that it aligns with the actual nature of the universe. It turns out that's, that kind of thinking is breaking down in the face of the complexity of the universe, in the face of the complexity of what it is to be a being. And panpsychism, for example, is growing. And that would be, to me, where Blake's idea of Eurism is, is what I'd like you to say a bit more about, because uh, then it's less esoteric as talking about the body of Christ, which sounds like a, a sort of Zen koan, you know, that you have to contemplate for a very long time before um, it, it, it illuminates anything. But the Eurism thing is, is I think, quite political and quite modern. It really, It's really what's playing out at the moment. Yes, uh, Blake has a critique of the Enlightenment. I mean, the critique of the Enlightenment is one of the great motivations of Blake's work, and it's central to his ideas. So he sees... Um, a sort of, you know, a blind rationalism. He often talks about Newton's starry wheels. Um, and what he means by that is the movement of the stars as considered from a mathematical point of view. So Newton's starry wheels are satanic. And what he means by that is that this cold rationalist approach is bad in many, many ways. It's connected with a certain uh, kind of judgmental religiosity, which he completely rejects, you know, the shaming of sinners and that kind of religious attitude. He sees it as connected with that, as, as well as being connected with many, many other kind of difficult or problematic psychic states. Um, and so he, he has this thoroughgoing criticism, as you say. But one thing about that is that I think people get that increasingly these days because everybody, is, is, you know, the last 30, 40, 50 years has begun to make that kind of critique. I mean, obviously, that sort of critique is coming to a much sharper focus now as we deal with things like climate warming. You know, we can see that 
to some extent. It's the it's the cold rationalism of yours, and you can see it as being the cold, calculating nature of the capitalist, if you like. But capitalism itself becomes a sort of rational machine, devouring the earth, which provides it with its, its basis for production. But nevertheless, it unthinkingly, in the blind pursuit of profit, pursues the destruction of, of the world. So he would see that as part of the march of Eurism, for sure. So to that extent, he is part of a, a rising, more general chorus of people making that sort of criticism, which you can see right across the spectrum. So for me, personally, began with, you know, the dialectic of enlightenment by Adorno and Horkheimer, which makes similar points from a sort of Marxist point of view. I did want to say, by the way, Connor, in terms of your introduction, I, I think I care a lot less about what the left think of what I'm doing these days. You know, I think I know it's a great object of discussion between you and I, because we both come from that sort of background. And it's fascinating to watch, for example, the left deal with the issue of ecology, you know, given what we know now. So that's all fascinating. But I, I don't worry about leaving them behind. I, I wish I'd done it a lot sooner, to be honest. It isn't just the left who would... I mean, this it is the new atheists as well. And the and there's a kind of scientist. You know, I enjoy... Um, Sean Carroll's podcast, and he's not the kind of scientist I'm referring to. There are scientists who, who any good theory, they'll give it time of day, but there's others who won't go into the spaces important around consciousness. And there's a dogmatism, I suppose, is what, what would lead people to not see a value in Blake's religious thought, whereas you've found, you've found great value in it um, in, in many ways, one of which would be ecological, I think that especially on the question of animal rights, he's way ahead of the curve, you know, where humanity as a whole is going to have to end up with with something akin to his uh, approach if if we're going to save ourselves. So maybe you'd say something about that. Um, we did promise the listener something about ecology. One of the things I had in thinking about Blake as a whole, you know, one of the problems I saw there was that I, I, my prejudice, if you like, is that Blake is incredibly relevant to our situation today, pressingly relevant, more than ever before. He has this immense relevance. I really felt that deeply, based on the kind of counterculture understanding of, of what Blake represents. Okay, So that's what was in my mind. But then there's this massive problem, in a way, because it is not unknown for Blake to say that nature itself is satanic. Okay, so and the point is that he says that a number of times. Nature is satanic, basically, um, and that's a huge problem in terms of modern ecological ideas because that sounds to be absolutely at odds with the idea that the ecological movement promotes about uh, the sanctity of nature. You know how, in a sense, you know, put it bluntly, how wonderful nature is, which is a kind of weird ideology in itself. But nevertheless, that is the common sense view these days, amongst lots of people. Um, and Blake's quotes in that direction uh, are radically at odds with that. So that fact alone made me uh, anxious. What was Blake on about at that point? But what I realised in the end was that, and I can't present all of this in one block right now, it's quite a, you know, some quite complicated connections here, but nevertheless, Blake's fundamental religious idea deeply connected with this notion of imagination being the body of Christ is that imagination is what fuels the spirit, which allows us to see 
reality really as it is, okay? So when Blake is condemning nature, saying nature is satanic, he means nature not conceived in that way, okay? Nature seen through the eyes of Newton is satanic. Uh, it's, it's then that the stars in the sky become Newton's starry wheels and so on and so forth. But when nature is conceived from the point of view of vision, Blake ends up saying, and several points in his poetry, and I, I always use this example because it concerns insects, which is you know, not among humanity's favourite uh, animals, you know, but he talks about the fly, and everybody knows there's a, a famous poem in you know, Innocence and Experience called The Fly, in which Blake considers idly brushing a fly away from the table uh, with the implication that maybe the fly had been killed by this brushing away. And then he says something like, you know, but am I not myself a fly? You know, and who, what does it matter if I live or die sort of thing? And the point about that is just that he makes some rough equivalence between humanity and a fly, which already seems slightly old, unless it's just some kind of, you know, Aesopian allegory or something. And you could think that, but elsewhere, Blake is much more explicit, and he talks about the the little flies that dance in in summer in the sun, and he talks about their dancing, their pirouettes. But he also says, you know, each of them within side is opened up into eternity. And again, it's a bit like the imagination as the body of Christ thing, uh, in that it's an incredibly odd thing to say that tiny flies are opened up with inside into eternity. It sounds bizarre. It sounds, you know, to the extreme end of some kind of uh, panpsychic uh, exaggeration. Uh, but as with the imagination as the body of Christ thing, what you realize eventually is that he means it quite literally. I think he means that the fly is opened up with inside to eternity and has an experience. There is something that it is like to be a fly. And I think in his visionary state, that's how he saw the world in a kind of quasi-animistic way. The world is full of demons, anima, spirits, uh, and so on. And of course, from a modern point of view, we kind of tend to assume that he's sort of tripping, you know, he's like, you know, he's imagining all this and he's projecting it uh, in a kind of anthropomorphic way, imposing this view on the whole of reality. And the way people imagine that our, our ancestors in the very distant past, that they didn't have scientific notions, so they imagined that things happened because there were other human-like forces at work, spirits at work, and therefore this sort of animistic attitude becomes a sort of bad science. It's a failure of the scientific attitude. But of course, in reality, that's not what was going on at all. These people really did have a different view of themselves and their existence in, in the world in which there were much more participants rather than observers. And in that world, this kind of quasi-animistic view is a natural view. It's the way you look at the world. And what I realized is that Blake actually sees the world that way, or he understands that that's how he's seeing it in his visionary state. It's that kind of animistic view of the world. Let me give the beautiful lines. Seest thou the little winged fly, smaller than a grain of sand? It has a heart like thee, 
a brain open to heaven and hell, with inside wondrous and expansive. Its gates are not closed. I hope thine are not. Hence it clothes itself in rich array. Hence thou art clothed with human beauty, O thou mortal man. And what uh, is interesting to me is that it's, like you say, it's not just poetry. It's a belief related to his whole theology. And in modern science, uh, which is often his enemy, but in this regard is moving into alignment with him. And I think many, many people are behind the times on where we're at now with our understanding of mind. We are, we are getting to grips with mind is very elusive. And you and I have had discussions of having read, say, Bateson on his concept of the extended mind. But we're getting more and more confident from, from the study of the insect world that they have minds, that they are beings. Now, I, I can sort of feel you bristling <laughs> because to get to that sort of understanding of insects through science is a, is a kind of funny way to get there when you could have got there um, what is it, 200 years ago now, um, on sort of first principles. But still, for me, uh, and maybe for the listeners too, it is really fascinating, the, the, the sort of evidence that's growing. For, I'll, just, I'll just leave that on the table, that there is growing evidence for uh, insects having minds. There is clearly a growing scientific consensus or, or an emerging consensus that says that many animals other than humans are having some kind of experience, okay? And obviously, quite apart from that, we're learning a lot about their intelligence, apart from, if you like, their sentience or their awareness. Yeah? We're learning they're incredibly intelligent. We're learning about other forms of intelligence, other ways of thinking. And we're learning all these things, and I do think it's, it's wonderful that we're doing that. I wouldn't like science to take all the credit, though, for that, you know, in the sense that we're not being led to this conclusion because of science. Uh, the, the fact that science is demonstrating the truth of these ideas is absolutely terrific. But I think the reason science is increasingly looking in, in that area is because of the general pressures, if you want to call them that, that we face as a, I was going to say a society. I really mean as a civilization, the, the problems we face as a civilization in our relationship to nature are becoming much more pressing for us. And that's why people as a whole are in increasingly look to nature and increasingly realise its strange properties, its weirdness, as we discussed in a previous podcast. They're realising all of those things. And part of that is that scientists are increasingly looking in that direction. I mean, again, if you look at the way science uh, deals with psychedelic drugs, of course, famously, they engage with them in the 60s. And then they put them on the back burner. They tried to repress that research for decades and decades until quite recently. And now there's a great re-emergence of psychedelic research. But my point is that those processes of what gets looked at aren't simply driven by the logic of science itself. They're driven by social forces and the concerns of real people in a real society. And I genuinely think that the scientists are now looking in this area because society as a whole has begun thinking in that area. Not everybody, obviously, but increasing numbers of people have begun looking at nature in a new light, finding it weird, finding it surprising, uh, spooky, uh, all kinds of things like that. 
And that's pushed science in that direction to look at all that stuff. And I'd say what I haven't connected here is the business we were talking about earlier about, you know, the uh, insects and the bees and the intelligence of these animals and how I got a glimpse of that from reading Blake's poetry on the fly. My point really was that once you've acquired that way of looking at the world, uh, not just as a, a proposition about flies and bees that you agree with, oh yeah, they've got consciousness. Once you begin to perceive the world in that way, what you see, you know, it changes the way you look at everything, really. And I just want to make that point that the environmental impact of Blake's thought isn't just about, you know, the working of intelligence and sentience in bees and insects. It's about our emerging awareness of the animated nature of all things. Let's put it that way. Not just um, our dogs and cats and animals that are roughly, you know, you know, that are like pets, but not just insects, but really everything. We we have to change our attitude towards it. And I think Blake has already made that transition. I think when Blake talks about his visionary states, he's talking about states in which you are in a changed relationship with the world. You are no longer that sort of agri-logistical calculator who says, as, as Bacon, the philosopher, said, nature to be commanded must be obeyed meaning that to command nature, we have to obey it, we have to understand its laws, and then we use those laws to command nature. And that fundamental attitude towards the world, which is tied up with the so-called scientific attitude of seeing the world analytically, dividing it into pieces, treating it rationally, that's what Blake brings under fire, not just through his stories about Eurism, but his whole worldview is itself a radical critique of that sort of reified, alienated mentality. But as I said earlier, you know, each of these topics that's come up, one comes up in relation to the other. You know, the ecology business um, started out with Blake's observations about the summer flies, but quickly dragged in all the other aspects of Blake as well about the ethics of environmentalism about 101, you know, other things. Um, and I realised that it connected quite closely with some of the ideas of Timothy Morton, who's trying to put together this, uh, um, you know, this sort of uh, spectacle realist view of hyper-objects and trying to turn that into a systematic view of things. I think there's some, you know, close relations in the ideas there. So, yeah, you know, we'll be looking at those um, in future. I, I hope as they come out. I think it's interesting that Morton has arrived in similar territory. The spectral realists would go further than imputing the connection to animate things or animism, as you were saying. They they would they would extend it to inanimate objects as well, and to concepts that we discussed in the last episode. Um, you know, so non corporeal things like the law of value and global warming. So that's really interesting and stretches one's um, sort of models of, of the, the world around us. It makes the world a really strange and weird place compared to the more simple one where, you know, objects are very, very boundaried and, and have a cause, a, a sort of Newtonian uh, behavior pattern to them. I mean, Timothy Morton, Young, all of these things, I don't have any particular commitment to any of them, but what I find is that um, I keep finding just how radical Blake's th thought is, 
and how compatible it is with some of the most radical thought going on today or at any time in the last you know, half a century at least. Um, and so I, th I see him not just um, someone who we can recover for the present day, but someone who's already ahead of us, You know, someone who's anticipated where we're at now. I think Philip Sufo, the, the surrealist, said, you know, Blake is a, is a plateau. He's not something you could rise above and take influence from. He's a plateau. And so I see him very much like that as a very radical thinker. And I just think where modern debates intersect with Blake is, is often where people like, you know, Morton and other people are intersecting with Blake and with these issues, with some really modern ideas, and Blake fits in with that. But so that having been said, I hope that our discussion today has been of some use to people uh, um, in terms of orientating themselves or making some sense of what the traveller in the evening is supposed to be about. And I hope I've given people at least some idea of how I see Blake's ideas being connected to surrealism, which admittedly we didn't talk about that much, but about politics, particularly over the ecology, uh, in theology, the way his theo theological ideas are connected to his ecological ideas, and so on and so forth. And, um, you know, there's so much, there's always with Blake, there's so much more to say, but, you know, we'll have to say, say more of it some other time. So thanks for everyone who's listened in. Uh, can I uh, ask you again uh, to consider subscribing to the blog and the podcast or whatever, whatever buttons appear on your phone or your screen to subscribe? Uh, I'd like to encourage you to, to prob those buttons and, and subscribe so you, at least you'll hear about our future articles and, and podcasts. But that having been said, thanks very much, Connor. Thanks to everyone else who's been listening. Mm -hmm.